views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when just... Peace, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nalaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is July 27, 2016. We'll go through this week's collection of stories, events with an abolitionist perspective. Again, I'm not going to give a long description of what's to come tonight. If you're tuning in here now, you already know we are at one of the most precarious and perilous times in American history, a time when change can become reality or be swept aside in the So let's just get into it. If you'd like to share a comment or question, call in and join us at 1-641-715-3660. The access code is 549-032-POUND. Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Perry Cobb and Darby Tillis, who were wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death for the 1977 murder and armed robbery of the owner and an employee of a hot dog stand on the north side of Chicago 14 years later as a result of petitions brought by the MacArthur Justice Center and the Center on Wrongful Convictions, Governor George Ryan granted Cobb and Tillis pardons based on actual innocence. Our abolitionist in profile is William Howard Day, October 16, 1825 to December 3rd, 1900. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. By the way, I want to give a shout out to you, Sir Hassan, who provided our abolitionist today. What's up, Scotty? Uh, um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm okay, Max. Um, um, I've seen that uh, your daughter is still going through that ordeal, man, and I just want you to know that the Black Talk Radio Network family stands in prayer, you know, for her fast recovery. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, her hair started going out yesterday, and in almost 24 hours, she lost it all. Just what was this hours. from? Chemo or something? From the chemo, yes, and they're sending her back again next week. They moved the schedule up, so they're going to give her chemo quicker now mm, mm. um we do have your Johannan with us but um before um Johannan, give me just a second what did you say about the abolitionists excuse me you had mentioned about the abolitionists in profile who did you say 
Oh, Yusef Hassan from Patterson, New Jersey, an old friend of mine. He provided our abolitionists in profile today. That's uh, that's not it, Max. That's not our abolitionists in profile. Okay, I'm sorry, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. Now I know why I was confused. confused. (laughs) Yes, that's part of my confusion. That's okay, man. It's uh, understandable. Uh, What's going on, Brother Johanna? Peace, peace. Good to be here. Good to be here. We all made it through, so, you know, we might as well do what we came to do. Yeah, and it's been risky along the way, ain't it? You know, brother, like, oof, just conversations you and I have had, some of the things you've had to face recently, and Scotty, too. Yeah, man, it's it's real in the battlefield, you know. We, uh, we do what we do, and um, we go through the highs and lows, and people may not understand. It's like... Uh, when things seem to be okay for the masses and we just kind of out here, you know, yelling to the top of our lungs, look at this, look at this, we need to rise up and so forth. That's one thing. But when the fear rises among the people um, and they start looking for answers and they start calling on the abolitionists and they want you to come speak and they want you to show up and they want you to pray for them and they want you to come fight with them and you know, all these things start going on. You got to try to wrangle people in and get them under control so they understand what they're fighting, who they're actually fighting, how to fight. I mean, you got to just start educating people when you can. And um, then within that, there's more chaos going on. So, you know, like one example uh, before last week's program, which we weren't able to, to, to air, um, I went to a town hall uh, meeting here in Kansas City and sat on the panel between two police officers and a, and a fireman and just talking about how we're going to bridge the gap, you know, between the community or what have you. And, and at that point, we hadn't really had any police community conflicts openly and, you know, obvious to the, to the masses to see. But um, we talked about it and, you know, tried to keep it as civil as we could or what have you. I mean, I tried to make whatever impact I could with it without just blowing the place out. I mean, it was supposed to be the first of several in a series. And hell, the very next day before 24 hours even passed, a cop got killed here in town. So it just, we're still trying to see if, if the pieces are all scattered or if we can still keep it together and still keep coming together. I haven't spoken with any of the police that were on the panel with me since that killing, but I mean, that just shows you, like you said, how precarious it is. Very much so. Any minute anything can go on, man. And uh, the narratives that are being put out, really, you have to be so careful of the words that people choose to say. Like, I listened to Van Jones recently do an interview talking about mass incarceration. And the very first thing he did was go under the assumption that everybody in prison has done something illegal. Like, that's the first thing you went off. You know what I mean? Like, it could be you. You might have had a bad weekend where you did something that, you know, was wrong. Like, and that's a, a wrong assumption to begin with. We're here to tell you that people are being hunted in the streets. The reasons that they're being hunted in the streets could be anything from homelessness to being broke. Just read the black codes from the 1800s, and you'll see exactly the same laws see, being applied. Right. That's the key right there, Max, is that... Just because they put a law on the book and say it's a crime, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to evaluate it for myself. Again, I have a very narrow definition of crime, very simple definition of crime. Crime occurs when an individual harms another individual, okay? Harms them physically, uh, abuses them, steals from them, obviously murdering them, raping them. You know what I'm saying? So when you do something that that 
uh, infringes upon another person's freedom and liberty, I view that as a crime. And I view these laws that have criminalized behavior that humans have engaged in for thousands of years with no problems, okay? I view those those as crimes, crimes against humanity, the black codes, a crime against humanity, the drug war, a crime against humanity, you know? So people, we, we really... You know, like Brother Dave on Tando Radio Show that was just on air before us, he talks about this a lot, about the indoctrination that we get from our schooling. And so we just automatically accept the government as the authority on telling us what is and what ain't a crime. So, I, you know, I'm with you, Max. I'm with you. If a person got, got busted with a, with a quarter pound of weed in his knapsack as he was walking down the street going to his home or whatever, I don't know. He didn't bother me. He didn't harm me. He didn't harm anybody in the community unless he robbed it. You know, he stole it from somebody. So I'm, I'm just I'm sick and tired of people accepting these things as being crimes when there are no victims. How can you have a crime without a victim? Right here on the program, we have reported on instances where as many as two to 300,000 people have been unjustly arrested, like the DeKalb County, Georgia courthouse that was illegally incarcerating people, like the instances where uh, the lab technicians were falsifying reports uh, used as evidence, like the FBI saying as much as 95% of all their hair and uh, uh, hair samples that they were using as evidence were wrong. Ninety-five <laughs> percent of them. And then, of course, the abolition or the uh, writers of the 21st Century Underground Railroad that we report on every week. So to stand there and think or say publicly that everybody who's in jails and prisons deserved to be there because they did something wrong is no friend of mine. You're not helping my cause. Right, right. I mean, obviously, there are murderers and rapists. Um, who are in there but then you are, I'm like you Max you should acknowledge that I mean I don't know what what is it uh, on an average about a hundred people a year that's being exonerated um, I think the last time I checked it was over 2,000 people who have been exonerated in the past couple of years alone yeah. it's accelerating every day it's uh, it's widening state to state and uh, by different municipalities the district uh district attorneys, uh, state attorneys, uh, prosecuting attorneys on different levels. Uh, there's, you know, obviously the Justice Project, several different universities have, have uh, established uh, Innocence Project-based uh, uh, campaigns on their, in, their le- in their law schools. So it's, a, it's a definitely a widening um, and, and growing uh, group of people that are working on these kinds of things. So, yeah, it's, it's gaining momentum all the time. And really, like you said, Scott, as far as being victimless, I mean, it's just so easy for me to see the connection, and and that's what I tend to point to to people that are just so all about this war on drugs, or like people that are in prisons uh, and getting caught up in the jail system all the time behind drug-related things. It's like prohibition didn't work in the 20s. It's there's no evidence, there's no person that has anything positive to say about the years of prohibition of alcohol in this country. There's nobody that is saying, no, on either side, nobody's like, man, that was a good time. We stopped crime. We, we dried everybody up. We got people off booze. We, we, that was the strongest time in the country. That is seen as one of the lowest times in the country. 
It gave that the opportunity the for organized crime to take over yes. my Yes. 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 So I don't I just do not understand and make the clear connection to black codes, uh make the clear connection to, you know, from the sixteen hundreds. Um that's why like one of my favorite books in the in the study of abolitionism and the study that we do is uh in the matter of color. Uh, Judge Higginbotham, where he's going all the way back to the colonies in the early 1600s, all the way through, telling you about not only were the black codes established and laws established that criminalized black people for their behavior, criminalized people, called them slaves before they were even deemed, you know, as a race class as that, native people the same way, but also penalized white people and actually created racism because they would penalize whites if they bought from black vendors. They would penalize whites. They would they would fine. So those were some of the earliest municipal fines. Just like now, they'll pull you over for a, a broken tail lamp. They'll fine you for a parking ticket. They'll generate revenue off of you for various little infractions or what have you, and, and that racks up like to the tune of $2 billion in New York City last year. They've been doing that since the 1600s in the colonies, racking up revenue off of fining people for little basic things in their behavior and they created racism, they helped to create racism and create these differences in classes by finding whites if they were found to be uh, buying things from black people, if they paid blacks to, to perform services, if they did all sorts of things. Before it was even established that blacks were even their slaves, if you just bought from a black person, that would be a fine. So I'm not impressed with law enforcement today because all they've ever done is enforce racist and unjust laws that cause separation between everybody. Everything you just said really is wrapped up in what's going on here in South Carolina uh, recently where the SLED chief, South Carolina, uh, and the senator were clashing over legalizing medical marijuana here in South Carolina, something that both myself and my daughter really need. Um, nonetheless, with all these billions being made, the statements are being said like this, that uh, legalizing marijuana for medical or recreational use leads to increased traffic fatalities, crime, emergency room admissions, teen use, and disciplinary problems at school. So this is why you want to keep sending people to prison, when in 2014, 50% of all drug arrests, even with all this legalization going on, 50% of all drug arrests were from the marijuana. A damn plant. Yep. This is how they're getting down. It's revenue generation. Nothing you know, new. Okay. Well, I was no, I'm just saying, it's nothing new. Yeah, I was going to say, I did an interview with a, a member from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Uh, actually, he used to be on the North Charleston Police Force down there, you know, where uh, Walter Scott was killed. Um, but he... he um, retired at the six years and now he's working with law enforcement against prohibition and uh he was on black talk radio news on tuesday yesterday and he talked about the ballot initiatives to legalize cannabis in california and maine and uh, about three or four other states may also get ballot initiatives on the ballot uh for november you know so at least that's a move in a positive direction uh california has had that ballot initiative before but it got defeated um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that people see that that is the number one tool that they are using to enslave people. 
a plant that has many medicinal purposes and they know this and nobody's ever OD'd on it or, or anything like that. And it's just ridiculous, you know, to be to be spending all this money to put people in prison for a plant the creator gave us. Indeed, Scotty. Hey, you know, it's hard to explain this to people, especially those who don't think logically and don't base what they're saying and what they believe, their foundational beliefs, on logical, uh, reasonable things that can be proven with fact. They just kind of parrot or uh, conform. And an example of that is a video that I put up on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page titled, Does the American Government Hate Black People? And Jay Morrison came on air to debate on Fox News about that very thing. And he is an abolitionist. He was expressing to them the concern, his concerns of, of how the 13th Amendment really is the linchpin of this whole thing, which allowed legalized slavery to not only continue, but to evolve to what we see today on this global level with it being so normalized. So I'd like the audience to hear this, and then when maybe we can talk about it afterwards. And also, Scotty, I would like to apologize for not being able to attend the uh, event that you recently had here on Black Talk Radio Network, the uh, town hall meeting. As you, you know, as you know, I'm running back and forth. So yeah, no know. apology needed, Max. But if you could cue up that video, I maybe we could start our, our show our program with that. Sure. And I want you to take a look at, the, at this, uh, the Baton Rouge killer, uh, Gavin Long, tweeting this on July 10th, quote, yes, the government is, the, is a hate group, they hate black people. He attributes this quote to my next guest, activist Jay Morrison. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Jay, how, how, do, how do you feel seeing your, your tweet associated with someone who gunned down all those police officers? Well, uh, definitely a confusing uh, a confusing point at that point didn't even realize and I probably did say it can't remember when I said it that particular quote um, but you know there's plenty of tweets that he tweeted there's plenty of information out there online and uh, it is what it is well when you say it is what it is do you feel any account of not accountability for their deaths but when you start saying that the I government is a hate proxy and they hate black people do you honestly believe the US government uh, this current US government hates black people well, the current U.S. government system is of the same system and same structure that it's always been, and it's, uh, we can call it mislike, we can call it uh, an, an antipathy, but regardless, there is a difference in how the government treats and addresses black people or Africans in America in the way they do other Can you give me a couple of examples? Sure, and I'm glad you, you asked that. It's, it's a great uh, alley-oop, I call it, right? I'm a slam dunk it. So if our, your audience, right, they're probably going crazy right now. This guy, you know, said these things. The government hates, hates black people. Um, I want everyone to look up things like the war on drugs, which is targeted black people, mass incarceration, COINTELPRO. The FBI director, James Coney himself, and the uh, New York uh, head of police also said the origin of policing came from slave catching. We also go look at black codes, vacancy tactics, the bombing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the bombing in Philly of the Moo family, all done by the U.S. government towards African people in America. So, so you would say arresting people and keeping law and order is anti-black? Are you, are by, by saying that, are you saying that black people inherently are the ones committing the crimes? No, what I'm saying is that having a system, a structure in place, right, from the post-freedom post, uh, or enslavement of black people, and where a system was created called the convict leasing system from, by our government, and where the same year that slaves were free, 
they created laws called vacancy tactics but, that but, made it illegal for blacks to be homeless and would lock blacks up and put them in a convict Jay, system. Jay, but, we're, but see, here's the thing. I, I hear what you're talking about with respect to America's history. Right. I, but you, you, the you, same you, practices you, are happening, to, happening today. Well, not, it's no, the same I targeting. see homeless people all over the place, but I still don't see where, where you, you, you're justifying the current, your current anger toward America or the American government uh, I can see you being upset about what may have happened in the past, but you but cannot it say it's changed. occurring. Of course it's changed. It, the fact that you're in this studio right now talking the way you are is the best proof in the world that it's changed. The fact that the 13th Amendment still says slavery was abolished except you commit a crime says that things are still the same. And when you have inmates working in prison, majority of whom are Africans in America, Someone who are making you, 20 Jay, and 30 cents a day Jay, why, for... Why are the majority of people in prison of, Af of African descent? Because the African people in America were never repaired after their enslavement, after them Jim Crow, after the government redlined them, after the government never gave any restitution for the Holocaust enslavement of African people. So if you don't repair a people or you put them in ghettos and you put them poor and uneducated in ghettos, you're going to get that kind you know of activity. You know it's interesting when we have this conversation, you know, sometimes I drive home on the West Side Highway. It's a little cluttered, so mm -hmm. I'll take the slow route. And I drive through some of my old neighborhoods that I lived in throughout Harlem. And I see them now, and they're becoming what they call gentrified. So it's the same neighborhood, the same buildings, but Correct. less graffiti, less garbage on the street. Right. So what makes a ghetto a ghetto? Not the buildings, not the neighborhood, right? Correct. Right. So the way people treat the buildings in the neighborhood Correct. makes it a ghetto. Who a can you blame that on other than the person in the mirror? I, there's two accountabilities. There is self-accountability for Africans in America that we have to repair ourselves because of the trauma that we suffered. But I liken it to if you take someone who was kidnapped, right, and, or, or a woman or a man who was molested, and molested for several years, and then they're pushed out of the house that they were molested in, and then they go out in the streets and they're promiscuous. You blame them for being promiscuous, but you don't blame the person who caused the trauma. Yeah, it's a stretch. See, it's, it's, no, it's, a stretch. it's not a stretch. It's a stretch. Was there or was there not? So if there was never trauma for this kind of treatment, right? I'm talking about the human rights violations of Africans We're talking about the individual, not the history. You know, no, one thing, I got to say something. They come together, King. They don't. You, you, they, they come together. If they did, if, if there wasn't a need for repair of people, then the Japanese Americans wouldn't have been repaired or had restitution after their two years internment camps in America. But, or the Jewish Germans so, so wouldn't Jay, have gotten repair. Are you saying all it would take in your mind then is some sort of ret uh, restitution check from no, the government? I didn't say check. No, well, you're saying no, some sort of restitution. Repair. repair. Repair aid. Restoration. Let me tell you it something. Starts with, it's, uh, there are no black people in America right now who, who were ever slaves. Not, not a single one. Right. There are no white people in America at this point who were ever slaves. Right. Correct. Okay. But and, is there not and, residual effects over, of that? The overwhelming majority. Are there no residual effects of that? Not for the average person on either is there side. No not for the average person for the uh, either How side. How do the black people get into the ghettos you talk you, about? You have to escape Did the government yourself. not redline black people? Put red lines on the map. Google it if you don't know, King. The government put black people into ghettos through redlining. That created it. Jay, Jay. Is that right Ultimately, or wrong? ultimately, we are in a point right now. Did the government not think, create CoinTelPro? Do you see? A government program that broke up civil rights leaders and assassinated our people. Did the government not do that? Jay, hold on, I guess, activist Jay Morrison. All right, Jay, uh, before we went to break, uh, you were explaining all these government programs uh, that were designed and currently are designed to hold black people back. Absolutely. Uh, but again, in your tweet, you, you really, you, you term it as government as a hate group. Correct. Uh, now, right now, you have a. What black was my tweet? Let's be correct about that. It wasn't my tweet. Oh, that wasn't your tweet initially. No, okay. That was not my I'm tweet. glad. I'm sorry. Then I, I misquoted you. He just he sent he added your name to the tweet. Then. Right. We're yeah. talking about the uh, killer of the uh, the police officers in Baton Rouge, Absolutely. who had one Twitter account called Convos with Cosmo.
But he did reach out to you because uh, he felt that you guys might have been like-minded on some of this stuff. Not necessarily going as far as murdering anyone, but certainly on the idea that black people are victims in this country. Despite the fact we have a black president uh, uh, and a whole lot of black people in this government who have been in position for almost eight years. Right. Who are you think Barack Obama? You think Barack Obama hates black people? I don't think that all cops hate black people. I don't think that all government officials hate black people. What I'm saying is that you could put good people in a bad, you're a businessman, you know. You could put good people in a bad system. If the company culture is screwed up, then it's going to play out in the, the market. Well, the market for us is a treatment of African people in America. And it's proven by, Jane Elliott said it best, you can ask a room full of European Americans, white people, and ask them, will you trade places with the treatment of African American? And not one would say yes. If it was fair, they all would say, sure I would. So ask your white friends at home, ask them, would you trade places with the treatment of black people in America? And not one would, because we all know it's unfair. Well, I don't want to speak for, for all white people here, but I will say a lot of people would probably turn around and say the worst part about the treatment of black people in America is how black people treat each other in America. But see, why is it always a spin? It's not a spin. It's, it's a fact. If we're, see, if we're laying out the factual issues, I, I, and we're going to rank them in terms of what's the most critical in terms of making black life miserable in America, mm -hmm. I personally think I would put the way black people treat black people at the top. I'm all for self-accountability. I, I, I call you king, and I call all our black women queens to purposely elevate and uplift them. That's what I, I've been doing it for a year now. I don't use any other words other than king or queen referring to our own, because we've been personally degraded. We degraded we degrade ourselves and we've been degraded. But you always we always spin the point. It's not a spin. How do we fix that? You have to tell How do we fix that? Black people When does black the perpetrator people? take acceptance? Right? You want the victim to take acceptance, but when does the perpetrator the government who created this system no, not the government. that has abused not the government. and traumatized the not people. Not the government. I'm they talking have. I'm talking about the young brothers who are gonna kill each other this no, week and all across the about. I'm, 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 okay with the, I'm okay with self-accountability. Okay no, I'm okay with self-accountability. How do you fix that then? How do we fix that? It's through our repair curriculum. Right now we're repairing ourselves by unifying ourselves. I have a solution for us. The solution for us is for us to get some self-dignity, self-pride by us unifying, understanding before we're American, we're African first. That's why it's African-American. And when African people realize that we are one, one people who are an assortion of Af African cultures and tribes and countries that were brought here, captured here, and been left in this crap to deal with it ourselves, then we'll unite and well, we'll fix our own problems. I'll tell you but this. we cannot forget the perpetrator who caused this misery for us. I think, I think we're all Americans first and foremost. You're first not. and foremost, yes. I am no. an American. And, and You're I'm, African and, I, American and I'm of African descent and I'm Correct. proud of that. Right. But I'm, I'm more proud of being Before an American more than anything else. Before your grandparents were, were, were American, it they were African. Matter. It doesn't matter. There they are people going to be free Africans. Jay, they're going to be people were sworn in tomorrow. Before they were going to be colonized Americans, they were free Africans. They're going to be people sworn in tomorrow. And guess what? They're going to have tears streaming down their eyes because they get to be a part of this great American dream. They want to assimilate while the majority of their people are in misery. I get it. I'm doing well for myself. You're doing well. There's, there's a 10% of us that do well. But what about the rest of us who are left in the ghettos, who are left in poverty, who are left with low education, who are left to, to deal with this? And yet, don't forget about yet, your people, King. And yet, no, well, listen. By, uh, by saying being who honest, caused this misery for honest, your people? Who caused this misery for your people? I know what who caused did? The, mo the misery I've seen in my own life, most of it against black people, have been at the hands of other. And black what's the people. other? The murders what's I've the seen. What's the other? The stabbings I've who seen. Who put them in that condition? The harm I've seen. Who put them in that condition? That who seen. broke them down that okay, way? Okay, that's what I've seen. Who, who, who degraded them and that who way? Is it, and, and who demoralized them that way? Ultimately, Jay. Hey, who, did, who dehumanized them that way? Where did they get that condition Jay, from, King? Jay, Where's ultimately, the ultimately, it's not going to wash. It doesn't wash now. What's the root now? of black people being in the condition I, they are? Before I let you go, Stop talking about do the you condemn, what's the root? Do you condemn what happened in Baton Rouge? 
Fucking, then what happened in Baton Rouge? The killing of those police officers. The killing of Alan Sterling? Of those police officers. I condemn all, all killings of all human beings. I don't think any human being should be life to be taken. A God-given life should not be taken by another human being. I condemn all God-given life being taken by someone. Right. Absolutely. Right, we're going to have to leave it there. Hopefully we're going to have this conversation. You know, I am, like, so pissed off right now. So, Scotty or Johanan, if you have something to say, I just want to breathe a moment. Well, let's go. Let's take an early break. Um, we only two minutes uh, before we start talking so, about that, so we won't have to interrupt anybody. All right, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com with Scotty Reed, Johanna Nelaya, and Max Parthas. We'll be right back after these messages. No, I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio, since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty and Johanna, there was one sentence that came out of there. There's a thousand of them, but there was one sentence, I think, that defined that whole conversation. When that proxy racist sat there and said, I don't want to speak for all white people. <laughs> I Brother, know you can't speak too. for one white person because you ain't white. Apparently <laughs> you're confused. <laughs> that's a coon for you. I don't usually engage in that, but that's, I mean, that's what you get from a, from a wild off, uh, the brother's off code I mean, this is the kind of dude, he, he pisses on code. You know, he has no interest. He sees no benefit. There's nothing that he sees that he can get from acknowledging that he is black, from connecting with other black people for the interest of black black folks as a, as a collective. He does not believe in black autonomy in, in any kind of way whatsoever. He believes in the dream, as he said, American dream, which is the dream of white supremacy. He believes in that. He's banking on that. He is one of these guys that that's that's all his that's his only plan. If he wakes up tomorrow and white supremacy, the the engine of white supremacy don't start up when he turns the key, he ain't gonna know how to get nowhere. He does not know how to do anything other than follow the orders and the and the example set and the plan laid out in front of him by white supremacy. So I, these kind of people don't don't impress me but I will say for uh, for our brother that was uh, on there representing the abolitionists he um, he is one of the first that I've seen that I can remember anyway uh, when I first saw this he was one of the first I could remember that has gone on cable news whether it's Fox or any of these networks because on the sly MSNBC and CNN is just as bad they don't let people come on there and, and stick to their agenda or speak to speak truth to power. They come on there and they direct the narrative and make them yeah. combat them and talk all around them and everything else. So he was able to stay on point, stay on message. He didn't let this dude take him off. He had clear abolitionist principles that he was speaking on. He had a plan in place. He was speaking the truth. So, you know, salute, brother. Yeah, you know, um, that being Fox, I have a couple of people I have worked with in the past, um, and they have appeared on Fox, like on Sean Hannity, as well as with uh, Bill O'Reilly. And I, I asked them, I was like, what, what, why do you go on there? 
Why do you go on there to subject yourself to such disrespect? They, you know, they have a plan. They have a plan to interrupt you and to put you in your place. They ain't really bringing you on there for to hear your ideals. They're bringing you on to provide entertainment for racists. Racists love seeing black people disrespected. They love seeing seeing people so-called put in their place and what have you. So I, I was like, I don't even see the purpose of black people or activists going on Fox News considering that less than uh, 4% of their audience is black. So, I mean, if you think you're going on there and you're going to change the minds of the racists who watch that, you're just sadly mistaken. You know, I, I just I, I just don't see it being a constructive use of our time by going on on such networks and and so one of the things i noticed you know everybody want to want to ask black people do they condemn you know uh um you know the brothers uh who did what they did to the slave catchers and so i can't recall correct me if i'm wrong i'm you know i don't i'm not all seeing and all knowing but do y'all recall after Dylan Roof did what he did, any white people being asked if they condemned Dylan Roof? Scotty, it's hard for me to understand what you're saying. You got some kind of weird uh, echo or something going that's on? Co- that's coming off yeah, your Hunter's line. Um, I will say to answer that, uh, we all know how that situation goes, and it reminds me very uh, uh, recently here, I think just last Saturday, I went to our one of our local city markets here, uh, to get my, you know, fruits and whatnot, you know, what have you. But I've been shopping with these guys of Mediterranean market. Uh, I've been shopping with these guys since before uh, the te- the terrorist attack of twenty uh, two thousand one. And um, so I, I mean, I've known their father. If their father passed, I've known the sons, you know, for years and years. And we've never talked about politics or talked about anything. You know, we we kind of talked about the war a little bit when we couldn't get, you know, certain fruits and vegetables from different regions and this kind of thing, but we really never went into it. When I went in there this last week, these guys <laughs> said to me, unsolicited, well, you know what, it was after Turkey, after they, they had the failed coup attempt in Turkey, and they said to me, you know that, was, you know that wasn't the people that were trying to take him over. You saw the people stood up and fought for him. The people love him. The people believe in him. And you see America keeps doing this in different countries or whatever. And then it just went immediately from that. And the guy said, and you know what else? I see what's going on with these police killing black men. And I see uh, what goes on when they talked about the black men that shot at those pol- that shot at those police officers and killed them. He said, and you know what they do? When it's a white person that kills all these people, they say they're mentally insane. But when it's a black man that kills, he's a terrorist. So you see, you see how they play the game. He was just looking me straight in my eye, telling me this totally unsolicited. I didn't say nothing to him about none of this. So I'm saying all this to say, people know what time it is. People understand what, what game they're playing. Well, to kind of follow up with your question there, Scotty, they understand what's going on. So, I mean, again, this brother is totally off code and in, in speaking in favor of and support of white supremacy, like Max pointed out, is, is saying... I don't want to speak for all white people. Like this is what we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, we do got a... any different than the woman Tommy Laren that said that Black Lives Matter is the new KKK. <clears throat> just as stupid, just as ignorant and foolish and hateful as she is, and uh, part of the same team. You know, the brother was talking about the 13th Amendment, mass incarceration, the history of convict leasing. These are the conversations we need to be having, but you keep pushing them out the door. You won't even entertain the thoughts on these mainstream media news outlets 
And we know why, because you are part of the problem. You gotta go. You're a racist outlet. You're paying racists to come on and tell people to go out and kill people, like the cop on CNN who uh, recently quoted uh, Tommy Sotomayor about how we should ask the president to get rid of all niggers, saying he knows what he's talking about. You're paying people. It's their salary, and you know what they're about, and you're putting them on a, on a worldwide stage. You're the problem. You right. need to go. They are responsible for those uh, officers' deaths. They don't even call themselves journalists anymore, like Tommy Lewis. I'm not a journalist. I'm just a commentator. And then they fall back on the free speech aspect. I get to say whatever I want. I'm a commentator. I I have the right to free speech. But your free speech ain't free. It's killing people. People are paying with their lives for the lies that you spread without even bothering to read anything to back up what you're saying. Um, We got a caller. Let me go to the... um to the caller area code. I think this is 267. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Peace and yes, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah, my, my name is Phil from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, I, I caught... Yes, thank you, sir. And uh, I agree with you guys wholeheartedly. Like, you know, our sentiments when you get to the real deal, the reality of real reality, yes, we're at war, and yes, they're trying to kill us. Uh, and you you got all the bases covered, systematic racism through the education, school system, church, and government. Yes, yeah, yeah, they're doing all that. And, and uh, you're right on the money with it. And now it's time for us... Uh, all our solutions are predicated off of unity. We have to unify amongst ourselves. To, um, to your point, if you um, look at all, if, if you look at all the solutions, even the, the solutions that Malcolm X and Martin and gave us, they kept using the word "we." We have to come together. We are a family, and they destroyed that family structure long ago especially with the systematic uh, institutional racism through the court system, family court, and all that. Last hired, first fired. So we don't need no more evidence. We need to start dialoguing on what is the nature of unity amongst ourselves. How can right. we throw off the Willie Lynch syndrome that we're walking around here with and, and waking people up that... Uh, still don't believe that they're are, are, are on the plantation. We on the plantation. We are the children that Harriet Tubman left behind because we still think we're, we are Americans and we're not. Hmm. So, uh, so yes, sir. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Our reply to that is what we say here every week, that the answer is abolition. See, we can't yes. agree on whether or not this is slavery. That's what kept, got us together, not only as black people and Africans, but all races form behind two choices. Either you're pro-slavery or you're anti-slavery. That was our decision back in the 1800s, and that brought us all together. And here we are again, selling human bodies on the open market in the form of prison stocks and jail bonds, working them That's for free. Right. 
torturing them, hunting them in the streets with black holes, and we can't seem to come to a conclusion on what we're facing. We keep talking about mass incarceration. We talk about injustice in the court system. We got Marilyn Mosley talking about how police sabotage an entire case, but nobody can't open up their mouth, squinch their lips together, and say the word slavery. Like, what is that? Is it against your religion or something? So when we come to that agreement, then we're going to change our minds because you cannot address slavery the same way you address mass incarceration. One is a crime. The other is a mistake. You know, one of the things the um, caller was saying. Okay, go ahead, brother. Yeah, this is Scotty speaking. One of the things the caller was saying about the unity factor, I was like, you know, just looking at some articles that was posted in this uh, political uh, group called, uh, I think it's called Politibro or something. And, and somebody had posted an article in there about the black woman who left the Democratic Party and was joining the Republican Party. And they and they were talking about she was leaving, saying this is, you know, good for black people. And my comment to him was, well, how is being on anybody's plantation good for black people i was like she just as much a slave as the black democrat so now she a black slave republican and i said that what we need to do is unify around our own agenda instead of their agenda that's right right. you know if we were to, to unify we would unify amongst ourselves we would be our own salvation yep yeah, see, on a spiritual, scientific level, that's that's the part we have to fix in our head because they didn't they took the chains off, but they kept the the mental chains on. So you need a spiritual, scientific uh, 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 process and understanding so that we can fix our brains to think the way we're talking now, and and uh, we don't have to talk about cause and effect anymore because we. There's no doubt about it. We know what they're doing. We know what they did, and and the, and the cause and the, and the result of all that. So we have to be able to come together and put the right questions on the table, and challenge our so-called leadership, uh, black clergy, and put the correct questions on the table. Like what? Like right. how do we? How do we unify? What is the nature of unity amongst us? How does it work? So that we can start the dialogue, so that we can start untying these chains on our sisters and brothers' minds. Because if you if if you don't realize where you at today, then you're 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 still hypnotized, and that's what we gotta untie. Because you you guys and me. We all did the research. We all did the homework. And now we understand. And that's all mm-hmm. it takes is a spiritual understanding. Not You don't have to believe nothing. That's where the church come in and got everybody believing in somebody else's opinion instead of giving their scientific uh, uh, pure thought of understanding of reality that we face today. And that's our problem. I think we need to start blasting it we what is the nature of unity amongst ourselves how it works what is it good for because we all got the same sentiment when that brother when those two brothers shot back at the cops and killed those cops we do not condone what he did but our sentiments are the same and i and i rest my case and 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 give you guys the floor on that because that's what we should be talking about 
right. how to unify us. I would like to also point out that if you want to know what is the nature of unity in this type of change, you have to look no further than the abolitionist movement of the 1800s. For we are doing the same things that they did for the same reasons. I have personally stood at the very same spot as abolitionists like Frederick Douglass reciting the very same words he said for the same reasons. So, you know, what... Unity looks like for us is the same as the abolitionist movement. We have to come together for the same reasons and use our talents, uh, whatever they and, may and be, we, in order to end legalized slavery. There was a point in that interview where the guy said, just because you're on this show is an example of change. I beg the difference. In our study of abolitionists here on this program every week, we constantly see how abolitionists were everywhere within the media. They were writing books, they were on uh, different circuits, they were doing tours, speaking in games. Engage- yeah, but everywhere. they were running their own media. They wasn't working for somebody else's paper. They created their own media platforms. Yeah, to a very right. large degree. Yeah. And they couldn't be ignored by the mainstream in the meantime who demonized them. Right. That's a big factor too in the in the last point the caller was making as far yeah. as just the the mindset of the people you know we need to get to a point where yeah we're teaching about you know modern day slavery the fact that slavery was never abolished in the first place we're teaching about these things that you know it just begins to be you know just repeating the same facts over and over again and getting people to get it to sink into their heads the cognitive dissonance is so strong in the average person because the place that they're sitting in is all is the only place they know it's a place of comfort even if they're being pressed on all sides they don't know of a better of a better way to go every day so they try to stay safe and not challenge the system that you know that they're that they're a part of but aside from that people need to not to get too esoteric or just get you know get conspiratorial or what have you but people need to realize that what we're dealing with is not just happenstance. It's not just happening by accident or coincidence. It's not. It's not um, uh, evolution of the society by natural and organic means. It's not even democracy where the people choose what they want and get what they want out of things. No, nothing could be further from the truth. There are thousands of think tanks and groups of people that all they get paid to do. They pay for a lot of these people's education. They get people that will be on message, and they will pay for them to become PhDs. They will pay for them to get degrees in several disciplines, and they allow these people to be in the conversation and help to fashion the conversation and guide the society along certain ways, paths that they want to go, help to influence legislation, help to seed these ideas of thought and the, the desires that become the masses' desires. These things are planned out. This is not some weird something falling out the sky. And the thing I'm bringing that up to point out is that we don't have anything that comes even close to challenging the width and the breadth and the depth of talent and science and intellectual weight and power that is behind these types of efforts. We've got the abolitionist movement. We've got a few other movements, and I feel like any of us could stand up next to any of them individually or coming collectively, but there's tens of thousands of them that are game, that are pushing the narratives that we're dealing with day to day, and there's a handful of us. So we got to get more and more people to take it seriously that it is a concerted effort 
being a war being waged against us. Yeah, we see the police shooting us in the street. Yeah, we see that. Yes, we see 2.5 million people in prisons. Yes, we see that. We see the, the private prisons soliciting business from the states. We see these things. But what we don't see is where the hell did the last 50 years of PhDs in various disciplines, where did they turn out? Where did they go? How, what, where did they disappear to? How did they become wealthy and well-established thought leaders in the communities all over the country? How, what influence did they have on legislation? What influence did they have on our society? We don't even know who they are. We don't see them, but their hand is pushing the agenda right on down the line. We got to get serious about what we're dealing with. Indeed. Uh, if I may, may quote my brother, Jasiri X, who said, uh, they created corporations because they didn't want the fame, so the nigga that you see is the nigga that's underpaid. There are hands pushing this from the background who know exactly what they're doing, and we listen hey, to them on the quarterly earnings reports. May I make a suggestion to people? Okay, because um, I'm just so tired of us being put on the spot and we, you know, stumble around with answers when they ask us if we condemn attacks on on slave catchers. Look, it ain't nothing personal. I don't know no individual cops like that. It ain't never personal. It ain't no more personal than when I was in the military and I was in the Gulf War and I didn't know any of the individuals on the other side, okay? So it, it ain't nothing personal. But it is a war, okay? And so I hate to see casualties on the battlefield, but the fact is is that slavery is being practiced. So if somebody asks you if they can, if you condemn e the actions of either one of those people, ask them if they condemn the actions of John Brown. Ask them if they condemn the actions of Gabriel Prosser. Ask them if they condemn the actions of Nat Turner. Ask them if they condemn the actions of Gullah Jack and Denmark V.C. Ask them if they condemn the actions of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Okay? So, uh, you know, I'm just so tired of people, um, um, you know, feeling like, oh, we got to condemn this, we got to condemn that. Again, I ask you, do they put these questions to Rudy Giuliani or, or, or anybody else running their mouth and asking, oh, did you condemn the, the actions of Dylan Roof? Or do you condemn the actions of those cops in Baton Rouge? Did, I, I don't hear anybody, you know, other than the people who care about justice condemning none of these talking heads. See, that's why I stay away from them, man. I, I stay away from them. I would never go on Fox News because it ain't no yeah. point, man. All they doing is trying to set you up and put words into your mouth and, and just provide entertainment for racists, you know, seeing like, in the same way. What's that? The beat up. So they're beating you up for pay. It's a big scenario where you come in like a gladiator and their champion comes out and slays you for their audience. Yeah, and if he asked the question if Barack Obama hate black people, I'd have said yeah. Based on what he did to Libya to prevent Africa from from obtaining a united currency backed by gold, which would have lifted all African boats. So based on what they did and how they stood by and let them racist Arabs kill all them black people in Libya and making up lies, even Obama told the lies. Talking about they were on Viagra, uh, Gaddafi had African mercenaries, and they were on Viagra, and they were just rape, raping all these people, and what? Oh, straight up nothing. But yes, he hates well, black people, in my opinion. 
if you if they want to know whether or not we condemn such actions, then they need to ask themselves, do you agree with Milwaukee Sheriff David Clark that this is a literal war between law enforcement and Black Lives Matter, which by extension means all black people, because you blame all black people's movements as being part of Black Lives Matter. Is it a war? And if the answer is yes, well, there's your answer. Consider it a war. And casualties happen in war, so end the war by ending slavery. Right. Indeed. Speaking of this, you know, the next thing that I want to get in is that situation with these three cops out in Chicago that we recently busted. But before we go into that, I just want to make one more comment about the video that we just heard in the interview with Brother Jay Morrison. There was one segment where the interviewer said that he used to live in Harlem and sometimes he takes the slow route to uh, work so he could, you know, look at all the little people where he used to be at. And he says that he saw that there's no graffiti and no trash and how can you see that as a bad thing and then he went on further to say that all we can do is blame ourselves for letting our neighborhoods get that way and he said he saw what people called gentrification and he almost made a quote sign with his hands when he said it as if there's no such thing but what he failed to mention is that he didn't see as many black people there as he used to see there. See, I walked from 125th Street down to 110th Street to visit my brother Abby Oduna Oyewole from The Last Poets, and I saw three black people along the way. That's what gentrification does. That money isn't meant for the people who were already there. It's for the people who are coming in when they start putting money in there. They bring it with them. They push out the black people, and guess where they go? Who the hell knows? A lot of them end up in prison. That's gentrification. And he failed to even note that on purpose. On purpose because he was feeding a narrative. All right, well, what are we facing with these police? They say all cops aren't bad. They say 95% of cops are good cops. Well, 5% of cops being bad when you got a million cops would be a lot of sociopaths. But I've spoken to police who have told me that 15% of the police force is bad and another 15% is aware of the bad one's actions and do nothing. So that's basically 30%. That means there's 300,000 sociopaths walking our streets. Here's an example of three that were busted in Chicago, and this is from Fox 32. right there on New Abolitionist Radio, Scott. Give me just a second. My browser moving kind of slow. Let me get there. Be prepared to be shocked, by the way, of some of the things that you may hear in here, and uh, then we'll discuss it after. Okay. Um, arrested officers in court. That's the one, right? Okay, yeah. Yes, sir. I got it story that is making news right now. Three Schaumburg police officers accused of stealing from drug dealers to sell drugs themselves. Authorities called this a dark day for law enforcement. Joni Lamy is live at the courthouse in Wheaton with more. Joni. Hello, Corey and Anna. $750,000 cash bond means these officers will remain in custody. A uh, drug de dealer turned police informant tipped law enforcement to this. They went to investigate on January 2nd. In about two weeks, they say that they saw law these police officers do about five drug deals, and at least one of them, they recorded the audio and video of the criminal activity. Drug enforcement agents arrested the officers, 30-year-old John Cicci, 29-year-old Matthew Hudak, and 47-year-old 
Terry O'Brien and O'Brien's girlfriend, who allegedly kept the drugs for them. Agents served 20 warrants searching the Schomburg police station, the officers' vehicles, lockers, and homes. Prosecutors say they used police vehicles and wore their gear while trafficking drugs. Investigators say that this all started as a routine drug sting that turned sinister. When law enforcement became aware that this was going on, we moved swiftly to get these officers off the street and gather evidence uh, that resulted in today's charges. And unfortunately, in this particular case, we had to take uh, three police officers who were sworn to pull public safety off the street. Um, you know, uh, from my point of view, I'm, I'm battling the Mexican cartels, 100,000 street gang members in Chicago, and now I got to worry about this. All three officers reportedly made statements when they were arrested. Uh, Hudak allegedly said, you got me. O'Brien said he didn't do it for the money. He did it for the thrill of it, according to law enforcement. And Sichi held his head in his hands, and he appeared to be sobbing during this bond hearing. If convicted, these officers could face 40 years, up to 40 years, in prison. Live at the DuPage County Courthouse, Joni Lum, Fox 32 News. Just an incredible story. Thank you, Joni. Gentlemen. Well, it goes back to the um, interview I did with the um, former police officer on uh, Tuesday, yesterday. Um, it goes to what the leader of that organization, Neil Franklin, has said about the drug war. It tempts, it's, it's just all this money involved and, uh, you know, the street market just uh, provides too much temptation for a lot of these cops, man. And so, again, you know, these are three, just three. This was one story about three cops. Uh, last week, I think we reported on a story about a Miami cop who was selling guns, you know, and yep. what, and stuff to drug cartels and what have you. We've talked about the DEA having a deal in place with the Sinaloa drug cartel that allowed them to smuggle drugs to Chicago. And I'm sure they probably brought along with them to sell on the streets of Chicago uh, some of them guns that the Bush administration and Obama administration walked across the border and put into their hands. All right. So, again, when people start talking and talking that stuff about, you know, the crime that goes on in the so-called ghettos and, and, and those, well, you know, most of those people are living in poverty. You know, uh, um, a lot of people don't sell drugs just for the thrill of it, you know. But, again, how can – we've been at this for 40 years, this drug war. It's been going on for 40 years. It's evident that it you can't stop drugs. You can't stop drugs from coming into this country. And, 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 and so, you know, now you got law enforcement officers out there dealing drugs and what have you. I mean, it's like, I don't know, man. I don't know what is it going to take for people to realize that this is all a sham, that this isn't really a, a war on drugs because they care about keeping uh, little children or anybody from using drugs. It, that's not what it's about. It is their biggest tool of enslavement, man. So, you know, I'm not surprised that these slave catchers was out there doubling as drug dealers as well. You have anything? I could wait till after the break. Um, okay. I've got two minutes, so just quickly, I do want to say a couple things. They said it's a dark day in law enforcement. You know how many times I've heard them say that just over recent years? 
You act like the sun shined at any point in your history when it wasn't a dark day. And let me point out something else. These three police were doing it in your face, in your office, using your equipment, riding in your cars, wearing your uniforms, and you didn't know it. You were no good judge of character. It took a drug dealer out on the corner to be able to point out that you had a problem when you didn't know it right there in your face, and it's always that way. 300,000 sociopaths involved in a million strong police. So one other thing, and then we're going to take a break. Notice nobody, nobody mentioned anything about looking into the history of the career of these police to see if they have unjustly incarcerated, brutalized, or killed anyone. They're just worried about whether or not these police go to jail and anything they did to anybody before this just doesn't come on the radar. It seems like to me, Max, uh, Max, uh, just one quick point to that is that they probably uh, was doing like them cops in Alabama planting drugs on people because clearly they had drugs. Yes, and nobody cares. It's not even on the radar. Not to the reporters, not to the courts, not to the judge. Nobody cares. You're listening to Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. The Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. You are tuned in to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, any further comments on the last uh, story? Well, I think you made a very good point, though. I mean, really, uh, every drug arrest those cops made should be under scrutiny. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It should be standard operating procedure. Like, every yeah. time, it should automatically initiate an investigation of the people that they have arrested, prosecuted, and all of the complaints that applied against them. Right, right. This is the thing, man. I mean, from the killings that we see go on immediately, just the same way as they take the people who are dead and blame them for their death and implicate them in crimes that they had nothing to do with. I mean, they become the face of crime to justify their death, but we never hear about what those officers have in their personnel jacket. We never hear about the millions of dollars that have been paid out by the city to compensate people who have made valid claims of abuse. Because, see, these are underlying things that are going on city to city. In this same city where these cops got caught doing what they do, they paid out $12 million in settlements to people that filed valid claims of abuse and terrorism at the hands of the police. So, like Max said, 30%, there's a million cops in the country. So that's 300,000 bad cops. 
at least. I mean, three getting caught, they've been putting the dope on the street. They've been putting the guns on the streets. They've been allowing people to operate with impunity. We know about the the Sinaloa trial where the, the head operators here domestically anyway laid out the whole plan. As long as we snitch on uh, two other cartels so they can get some busts on other cartels, we're allowed to operate pretty much wide open. And they use Chicago as a hub for their guns and their drugs. And once they get them in the country, into Chicago, then they distribute it out all along the eastern seaboard, north to south. And that's been going on since the early 2000s. So these are things that are a matter of record, a matter of fact, under oath, on record in court cases. And you see the, the cops, you know, in local, in local capacity doing what they do all the time. Man, this thing is all bad. It's, it's all bad. It's all bad, man. And, you know, you see the power that's influence, of influence that is held by, like, the police union, where they can shoot a man with expert marksmen in the middle of the street who is unarmed with his hands up, while an autistic man with a little toy truck in his hand is sitting there next to him. And a SWAT team member can shoot at him three times, miss twice, and then hit the man and said that he was shooting to protect him, according to the police union, but you're supposed to be a marksman and you hit him. And then you handcuffed the man after you shot him and treated him like a criminal. So the power of influence that they have is just it's ridiculous. They shouldn't have this power and shouldn't even be part of any kind of organized labor union. You are against the people, not for them. And, you know, we got a lot of cops like the Cincinnati police officer who warned the racist killer cops who are now speaking out. And I'd just like to say to them that you're the only one who hasn't been telling your story. Just you. Everybody else knows what you're going through. We've been talking about it all the time. It's just you that's not saying anything. And when you do say something, you get targeted, and you know it. Like this brother in Cincinnati, we're saying, you know, they're trying to kill us out here. These are racist white cops who want nothing more to see us dead. And now he's losing his job because of that. If I was him, I would say thank you. It's a terrible I mean, time to find ourselves in. Go ahead, brother. I was just gonna say, I mean, it all it all goes comes full circle, man. I whether a person is new listening tonight, the first time they've ever heard anything along any of these lines, you've got to be able to see from the time we started speaking on this program an hour ago, right up until this very second, you have to be able to see a full circle connection from the history of the arrival on these shores of America of black Africans that was intended to be made slaves you have to be able to see a connection from that time until today of the same terrorist behavior at the hands of slave catchers it's the same thing it's not anything different just like the brother said in the interview on Fox with the with the Negro host telling him it's the same thing it hasn't changed so that's, that's really kind of the thing I want to always encourage people to open your mind up to and accept it that's the first thing it hasn't changed then we can get into the specifics of what's going on now the nuance the elegance of the design the way that they're able to do this and that and start talking about all that about what's what's going on now first thing you got to do is see the connection from the freaking 1600s till today 
the same laws, the same codes, the same racist intent, the same penalty for whites, the same penalty for blacks, the same terrorization, the same open-ended non-prosecution of anything done wrong by the cops. A city like Milwaukee, for example, went the entirety of its history as a city until here recently, never, like 150-something plus years, never having found a law enforcement officer ever having been in the wrong for causing the death of a citizen until there was a, 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 a white guy, his son got killed by the cops and he fought in tooth and nail for years to get them finally some kind of way implicated and it was the first and it's still the only time on record in the city of Milwaukee where Sheriff David Clark resides that they ever were found wrong in uh, guilty of any wrongdoing in the death of a citizen in 150 plus years. How in the hell is that even possible? Exactly, brother. Exactly. And, you know, as you said about the full circle thing, we need to take this really full circle. But we talked about the police and uh, we talked about the instances with the uh, murders and inequality and injustice and how it all goes back to the 13th Amendment exception clause for slavery and a continuation of slavery today in a modern style. Well, let's take it to the courts because this is an important story and people need to hear what we just said today. But before you hear that, I just want to remind you of something. The next time someone tells you to fight it in court, remember this. 95% of all prosecutors are white 79% are white men. 90% of all people waiting in jails for trials are black or Hispanic. 97% of all federal felony convictions and 94% of all state felonies end up in plea bargains, backroom deals that have nothing to do with justice. Prosecutors use preemptory challenges three times as often to strike black potential jurors as others during the last decade, the results being all white juries. So the facts do not support the false idea that we have a constitutional right to a fair and speedy trial. Um, what I want you to hear is Marilyn Mosby speaking about basically how they're ending their case now. No one will be prosecuted. Nobody is guilty. And she's going to settle for the changes that have been made due to this case as some form of justice. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Today, Baltimore finds itself at the epicenter of a national conflict between urban and rural populations of color and the law enforcement agencies that are sworn to protect and serve them. It is a struggle that strikes at the basic ideas of self-determination, justice, equality, and sadly, humanity in America. However fitting it is for observers to use the untimely death of Freddie Carlos Gray Jr. as a barometer of our nation's progress on police brutality, my professional role in this matter is plain to seek justice on behalf of an innocent 25-year-old man who was unreasonably taken into custody after fleeing in his neighborhood, which just happens to be a high-crime neighborhood, and had his spine partially severed in the back of a Baltimore police wagon. As the chief prosecutor for Baltimore City, I took an oath to uphold justice and to treat every individual within my jurisdiction equally and fairly under the law. I take my oath 
very seriously. Since the start of my administration, we have been and continue to be wholly committed to creating a fair and equitable justice system for all and holding people accountable for crimes that they commit regardless of age, race, color, sex, creed, socioeconomic status, or in this case, occupation. As a chief prosecutor elected by the people of Baltimore City, I made a promise that my prosecutors and I will never cower from our obligation to prosecute crimes where we believe that we have probable cause that a crime was committed. We're sworn to not only uphold the law and hold violent repeat offenders accountable, but we're also sworn to apply justice fairly and equally to everyone, even those that take an oath to protect and serve our communities. As prosecutors, we are servants of all victims and witnesses of crime in Baltimore City, and we fight each and every day to ensure that perpetrators of crime see their day in court and are held accountable for their actions or inactions where there's a relational duty that requires such. We never cowered in our battle for justice for 16-year-old Felicia Barnes, one-year-old Carter Scott, bicyclist and loving father Thomas Palermo, or Shatia Lansdowne and the various other sexual assault survivors of Nelson Clefford. As I previously stated, the decision to prosecute six police officers was not and has never been an indictment on the entire Baltimore Police Department. Although some have tried to invalidate my family's long-standing service as public officers, I know firsthand the sacrifices, the dedication, the commitment it takes to protect and serve our communities. For those that believe that I'm anti-police, it's simply not the case. I'm anti-police brutality, and I need not... I need not remind you that the only loss and the greatest loss in all of this was that of Freddie Gray's life. For over a year, my office has been forced to remain silent on all six of the cases pertaining to and surrounding the death of Freddie Gray. Despite being physically and professionally threatened, mocked, ridiculed, harassed, and even sued, We've respected and fulfilled our obligation in dutiful silence in accordance with Judge Barry Williams' gag order, restricting any commentary from the state. In accordance with my oath to pursue justice over convictions, I've refused to allow the grandstanding of some and the hyperbole of others to diminish our resolve to seek justice on behalf of this young man. I was elected the prosecutor. I signed up for this, and I can take it. Because, because no matter how problematic and troublesome it has been for my office, my prosecutors, my family, and me personally, it pales in comparison to what mothers and fathers all across this country, specifically Freddie Gray's mother, Gloria Darden, or Richard Shipley, Freddie Gray's stepfather, goes through on a daily basis, knowing their son's mere decision to run from the police proved to be a lethal one. Please know that even though the media has made this about everything but the untimely death of your son, my office has never wavered in our commitment to seeking justice on his behalf. My team of prosecutors, led by two highly respected veteran attorneys, Chief Deputy Michael Schatzow, Deputy State's Attorney Janice Bledsoe, right here, and Assistant State's Attorney John Butler, Matt Pillion, Sarah Akhtar, Law Clerk Michael Fiorenza have devoted countless hours and make countless sacrifices to ensure accountability on your son's behalf. I'm extremely proud of my team who never lost sight of why we were fighting so hard, your son. As the world has witnessed over the past 14 months, the prosecution of on-duty police officers in this country 
is unsurprisingly rare and blatantly fraught with systemic and inherent complications. Yes, it is. Unlike with other cases where prosecutors work closely with the police to investigate what actually occurred, what we realized very early on in this case was that police investing, investigating police, whether they're friends or merely their colleagues, was problematic. Yes. That's right. That's right. There was a reluctance and an obvious bias that was consistently exemplified not by the entire Baltimore Police Department, but by individuals within the Baltimore Police Department at every stage of the investigation, which became blatantly apparent in the subsequent trials. Although Commissioner Davis was and has been extremely accommodating, there were individual police officers, there were individual police officers that were witnesses to the case, yet were part of the investigative team. Interrogations that were conducted without asking the most poignant questions. Lead detectives that were completely uncooperative and started a counter-investigation to disprove the state's case by not executing search warrants pertaining to text messages among the police officers involved in the case, creating videos to disprove the state's case without our knowledge, creating notes that were drafted after the case was launched to contradict the medical examiner's conclusion, turning these notes over to defense attorneys months prior to turning them over to the state and yet doing it in the middle of trial. As you can see, whether investigating, interrogating, testifying, cooperating, or even complying with the state, we've all bore witness to an inherent bias that is a direct result of when police police themselves. And despite the challenges of not having an independent investigatory agency to work with us throughout this prosecution, we still are grateful for the opportunity to show the world the reality of the justice system from start to finish. At every step of the way, due process was afforded all of these officers, and the legitimacy of our prosecution efforts were affirmed time and time again. They were affirmed when the court commissioner signed off on the charges that we filed. They were yet again affirmed when we presented our case before a grand jury and secured indictments against all six officers in every charge that we presented to them. Our legal arguments, theories, strategies were affirmed not only in 135 motions in which we successfully overcame, but also in the state's highest court where we battled and ultimately prevailed in compelling the officers to testify against each other. The legitimacy of these charges were even affirmed by the judge after he rejected 13 motions for dismissal and denied 22 motions for judgment of acquittal throughout all four trials. As prosecutors, we are ministers of justice, and it is our ethical obligation to always seek justice over convictions. As prosecutors, we do not determine guilt or innocence of individuals, but rather present evidence to a judge or a jury to make that determination. In these cases, my prosecutors presented a great deal of evidence to support the charges alleged. And although we came close to convicting one of the officers when his case was tried before 12 Baltimore City residents, the judge, who is within his right, has made it clear that he doesn't agree with the state's theory of the case and does not believe that any of the actions or inactions of these officers rise to the level of criminality. The judge has acquitted three of these officers, one of the arresting officers, the wagon driver, the highest ranking police officer in these matters. 
in light, in light of these consistent outcomes, the likelihood of the remaining defendant's decision to elect a bench trial with this very same judge is highly probable, and unfortunately, so is the outcome. And while to this day we stand by the decisions, the legal theories, the charges and assertions set forth in the statement of probable cause and during these proceedings, as officers of the court, we must respect the verdicts rendered by the judge regarding the ultimate culpability of the adjudicated officers involving Freddie Gray's death as final, no matter how much we may disagree with his rulings. We do not believe that Freddie Gray killed himself. We, we stand by the medical examiner's determination that Freddie Gray's death was a homicide. However, after much thought and prayer, it has become clear to me that without being able to work with an independent investigatory agency from the very start, without having a say in the election of whether our cases proceed in front of a judge or a jury, without communal mm. oversight of policing in this community, without real substantive reforms to the current criminal justice system, we could try this case a hundred times in cases just like it, and we would still end up with the same result. Accordingly, I have decided not to proceed on the cases against Officer Garrett, Sergeant Alicia White, or to relitigate re the case against William Porter. As a mother, as a mother, the decision not to proceed on these trials, on the remaining trials, is agonizing. However, as a chief prosecutor elected by the citizens of Baltimore, I must consider the dismal likelihood of conviction at this point, the judicial economy in proceeding further and the divisive impact that continu continuing this prosecution could potentially have on our community. What I've ultimately learned throughout this arduous process is that although no small task, justice is always worth the price paid for its pursuit. You see, in spite of the fact that the verdicts didn't go in our favor, there have been many gains throughout this journey to ensure that what happened to Freddie Gray never happens to another person that comes into contact with police, justifiably or unjustifiably again. Never again should there be a question as to why someone is being stopped, detained, or arrested due to the fact that there will now soon be full implementation of body-worn cameras on all officers. Never again should someone be placed unsecured and defenseless in a metal wagon head first, feet shackled and handcuffed. Due to the fact that officers are now required to secure and seatbelt all prisoners. Never again should there be a need to rely on circumstantial evidence to observe what takes place inside police wagons due to the fact that cameras are now equipped in every one of them. Never again should an officer ignore or neglect a prisoner's request for medical attention to no avail due to the fact that it is now mandatory for officers to call a medic when requested. Never again should a commanding officer or a rank and file officer be able to assert that they are unaware of departmental policies, general orders, or procedures due to the fact that there is now a software verification and accountability system to ensure their adherence. Never again should an officer exhibit a blatant or reckless disregard for human life due to the fact that there are now use of force policies that emphasize the sanctity of life, accentuates de-escalation, and requires that officers intervene if fellow officers cross the line. You see, what I've learned through this experience 
is that every battle, every hurdle, every obstacle that we've overcome since the pursuit of these cases has brought us one step closer to equality. And that any and every step towards equality in our justice system is well worth fighting for. This system, this system is in need of reform. And when it comes, when it comes to police accountability, and as long as I'm the chief prosecutor for this city, I vow to you that my office and I will fight. We will fight for a fair and equitable justice system for all. So that whatever happened to Freddie Gray never happens to another person in this community again. Thank you. Well, preach. I have so much to say, brother. And I'm going to try to keep just simple so I don't pick up so too much time. We only got about 10 or 15 minutes left to spare. Um, I just want to say that's some of the best spoken word poetry I've ever heard, right, Kent? A lot of it was a lot of it was true. A lot of it was not true. Uh, for instance, she said at one point, as prosecutors, we do not, not determine guilt or innocence. And I read to you before this even came on that 97% of all federal and 94% of all state felonies end up in a plea bargain. That's a prosecutor deciding whether or not you're guilty. So that is not true. Secondly, at the end of it all, after all of these so-called reforms that they have put into place, she said that she will continue to fight. Well, you just gave up. You just said, let me read her words verbatim. Uh, if I can pull it up here, my, my computer's going a little slow. But you just gave up and you said this. And this should be examined by people all over the country. After much thought and prayer, it has become clear that without being able to work with an independent investigatory agency from the very start, without having a say in the election of whether cases proceed in front of a judge or a jury with communal oversight of police in this community, without substantive reforms to the current criminal justice system, we could try this case a hundred times in cases just like it, and we would still end up with the same result. She just indicted the entire criminal justice system right there. Just said it for herself and now saying that we're going to give up because we can't beat them. They own everything. The cops sabotage the case. They refuse to investigate. They refuse to go and uh, submit uh, subpoenas to retrieve emails and communication. They refuse to do it, and they're still working there every single day. You know, body cams are not justice. We just saw today another man killed 15 times. He was tased. It was all caught on body cams. It didn't stop him from dying. Uh, when you're talking about cameras in the back of these, uh, these vans that carry the people and making sure they're secure, well, as far as I know and everybody else knows, that was already the law. That was already the, the thing that was supposed to be going on. They chose not to strap him in. So what do you think they're going to do now? Because you told them... Uh, this is a new rule. The old rule is the new rule. And further, cameras alone, they solve nothing. We're just creating snufffilm.com for police. That's all we're creating. Where they can brag about how many people they killed. Where they can show them off like trophies from an African safari. This is not justice. And to see a state prosecutor give up like that because they feel like it's just so crooked I couldn't possibly win. It's set against us and nobody's doing anything about it. 
takes away any kind of hope that most people would have of having justice. Brothers? Man, I can't I can't uh, go against this sister for what she said. She spoke the truth, in my opinion. I mean, I think we see week in, week out, year in, year out, that what she said is the case. I mean, yeah. whether you talk about the people not caring and not getting behind the elected officials, if we're talking about the people not even producing their own elected officials, I mean, this is this is the fault of the people to a certain extent. You have to create and produce your own political figures. Then you have to help fund them. You have to help make sure they stay in office by funding not only their campaigns, but making contributions to their office. You have to stay in their face. You have to make yourself available in their service. You have to raise up a community that they can hire and have them work and be a part of the office and combat against these other people who just get to passively resist and their passive resistance is stronger than our most ardent, focused, powerful freedom fighters that we can produce. They can just passively just sit back and say, nah, we're not going to let you do this and shut down people that have been raised up to fight for freedom for us. Because we won't, we refuse to get in the game the way that this game is played. If you're going to be an American and you're going to be a part of the American democratic system, you have to create your own politicians and you have to help fund those politicians so they will stay loyal to your concerns. That's what every community except black folks has been doing from the beginning. So when you hear this sister say this, this is like her raising her hands with the hands up, don't shoot. This is the, this is the, the secret code sign of saying, hey, I need help. I, I can't do it by myself. I need help. I need people to get behind me and get behind our office and get behind these prosecutions and get behind people that are trying to fight for freedom like they want to get behind Jesse Williams' speech. Like they want to get behind these. That's why I cannot endorse these random highlighted stage stealing moments like a Jesse Williams speech this is exactly why so now we can see perspective this is reality Freddie Gray's dead this sister is in a position to try to help get justice for him for his family and for us in the future to be the terrorism to stop this is how you actually change that and she just told you I can't do it I don't have the resources, I don't have the political clout, I don't have the help, I don't have the security at the end of the day to keep me alive to do it. But you don't see this featured on social media. This is the first time I'm hearing the speeches while we're airing it on the broadcast tonight. I haven't seen it in my news feed all day long. I saw it maybe once or twice posted through there in particular groups that I'm in that are very specifically uh, focused on this type of thing. But in general, I ain't seen nobody posting this. I haven't heard anybody touting how powerful this speech was. I haven't heard anybody going on and on about how great and wonderful this sister is. I haven't heard any any uh, uh, colorism mentioned. Oh, you just supporting her because she light-skinned. All that bullshit that black folks spent a week going on and on about a, about a damn actor at a damn BET Awards, but a real politician, a real educated professional, speaking with the spirit of freedom and justice coming out of her mouth you can hear you can't deny that woman was speaking from her heart the, the real truth the best and that she knew and, it, yeah. and indicting each and every one of these people that's sitting on their ass not doing a damn thing to help support her that's why I can't get behind that spur of the moment 
fad, the new fad, the new trend. Everybody's excited. Ooh, did you hear what he said? Ooh, did you see what he it's, it's childish, it's silly, it's irresponsible. And damn it, you're putting our children's lives at risk. You're putting our future at risk. Believing in that BS. If I might, Your Honor, um, add to what you were saying, you, most, you mentioned about how she needs support financially. A lot of the communities that really need help from people like her don't have any money to be offering support like that. Not to one, and particularly not to five or six different candidates. You know, it's often hand them out to communities that really need it the most. But so she's asking money from the people that are in the firing line, so to speak. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, and I agree to an extent. But here recently, we saw uh, Killer Mike come out in Atlanta, anyway, and push black folks. Over eight thousand black people came out and put a hundred dollars a piece into a so-called black bank and raised over almost a million dollars in less than a week because yep. a rapper told them that it was something cool to go do. And these black folks put their money into a into a bank, whether it's black owned or black run or what it ain't black regulated, and they can't give out a black loan no more than a white bank can give out a, a loan to a Negro. They can't do anything that the FDIC is not gonna allow them to do. They can't give away money irresponsibly. All you can do is put your money in there and it's still gonna be regulated the same way. Right. But because the rapper told them the charters to those banks. Right. A white yeah. group that um, owns the charters to those a banks. Million so dollars. Like a franchise. A million dollars in less than a week because a rapper told him to do it. So I think we got the money to do it. I just think we choose not to do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, when we see recent campaigns, even going back to Barack Obama's campaign, I think the average donation was only $20, okay? I think Bernie Sanders' average donation was like $27. So, so you know, we can come up with money to do anything we want to do. Come on now. I know, I, you know, no, I ain't got $100, you know, to spare or anything like that. But I got 20. You know what I'm saying? I got I could give 25, you know. I, I mean, if we 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 can't keep making excuses. Um No, uh, no we can't. Well, I lived that before I, I was re uh Well, Max, let, let Max, we us. we got a couple I of callers, man. Where the average income was $11,000 a year. Okay, I understand. Now, I understand that, Max. I understand that. I understand that. But please let let me finish. Let, let me finish. I'm like, I'm like, I don't really have any criticism of, of what she had to say. Um, we know that body cameras are not going to stop uh, any killings, but it might prevent some. When people are under, when they are under more scrutiny, and that's not what I got from her. What I got from her is that those cameras will provide evidence, clear-cut evidence that she needs to prosecute. Now, we have seen cameras like Laquan McDonald, and we saw the prosecutor who got you know, uh, lost the election. Anita Alvarez sat on that. Uh, they fought to hide that that footage and stuff like that. So it all depend. It all depends on who is in those positions of power that that regulate. You know, the cameras and stuff. And so I think those cameras in those vans. I think putting body cams on every cop that's going to be interacting. That's a good thing. And and even if it provides snuff films, okay, maybe it's the snuff films that's finally uh, pushing people to rebel. When that's what caused them other two brothers to rebel. Just tired of seeing it. Tired of seeing it. Tired of seeing it. But she is just being honest and telling you that this whole system is corrupt up there in Baltimore. She said. She yeah. said that you know they couldn't even get an independent prosecutor. 
you know, or, or I'm sorry, they couldn't even get, you know, an independent investigator like the state investigation uh, bureau. Mm, no yeah. So what we had here was the police investigating themselves. I mean, she laid out everything. Then she said that even the judge was letting them go. Then she put it on the juries, the juries that were hanging up, that were being ending up in hung juries. So, I mean, all she's doing is, is, is providing a very accurate observation of what's going on in that system. And I can understand where she was coming from, and I'm sure she consulted with the family before she came to this decision not to prosecute, to drop these cases. Because, I mean, it's just going to end up being the same thing with the same people investigating it, the police, their friends, and their union. So, I mean, I see all of that. Uh, um, with the body cams and stuff as a good thing but again uh, it, it, it doesn't we need that we need those tools but if the people who are in in decision making positions are not people who want to practice justice then all of those body cams don't matter okay but she seemed to be saying that they will help her so then there will be no question about what happened. I don't have to ask you this and ask you that. Now, here's one thing that I would have done if I was in her position is she was saying that those cops, you know, investigators were doing all those shenanigans. That sounds like obstruction of justice to me. So that's what they, ain't that a charge that you can slap on somebody? So in a way, I do feel you. I do agree with you to a certain extent, Max, that she gave mm -hmm. up in this cases in this case when she could have you know just made it bigger just made it a bigger mess than it already is it, not a mess but make it put the system uh indict the whole damn system is what i'm trying to say indict she those people she were talking about that was obstructing justice because that's what she was talking about but i i mean i'm with her um, I, I, I felt her passion. I felt that she was being sincere and she was just being truthful and, and honest. But we do got a couple of callers that uh, we do want to try to get in before we run out of time. I, I agree. Like I said at the very beginning, I mean, that she said one of the most damning indictments of the American justice system we've ever heard. And this should be studied all over the country. People all over the world should be reading and listening to what she just said because it's the absolute truth. Yeah, um, and, and here's the other thing, though, too. Um, a lot of these, this is the number one reason why I was going, to, why I vote, is because of the district court judges, the people that I might end up in front of. And while, you know, he died recently, but we had a black chief district judge, um, um, Mr. Ralph Jingles, um, um, who um, had been on the front lines of the civil rights movement going back to the 60s. And, and this man, from what I could tell, you know, believed in justice. And he, he has set the atmosphere in the courthouse where I am is that you do not, that they don't want to send people to jail, that they want to, you know, they look at your record. And if you, you know, don't have no priors and stuff like that, then, you know, they're not going to throw the book at you like we see in so many of these other places places you know where we got people who got life in prison behind drugs and they ain't never even had prior uh, convictions before and, and so you know I don't know about Baltimore 
Um, but I suspect that th- those were district court judges and they are elected. So they need the people up there in Baltimore need to determine who what the name of the judge is that she's talking about that was helping to cover up, uh, helping the police get away with get away with uh, um, uh, this homicide and what have you. But let, let me move on and get this caller uh, area code. Yeah. Uh, five seven three. Thank you for calling in. Go ahead with your question and comment. Uh, thank you and hello, hello guys. Um, my comment is concerning the fact that what one of the big things that needs to happen is they need to rotate police officers. And I'm not talking about just rotate them within the same city. I'm talking about rotate them between different states. Because here's the thing: the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, all these people do the same thing. What we do. What we, what we did when I was in is we rotated people every three years, or right about three years, to different commands in different areas to prevent loyalty to each other and certain commanders. So what you get is you get a bunch of people whose loyalty is centric to the to the military itself instead of their fellow as their fellow personnel that they work around. I mean, there is still some loyalty there, but it's diminished greatly by moving them around. Yeah, I'm former military too, caller. I'm former military, and so I'm I'm sure you're aware of the term brown noser. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But see, here's the thing: you, you know as well as I do that every few years those guys are gone. You know, they they bounce to another command, they go to another place. They're going to wind up with another supervisor, with another person they're working alongside. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too, that this guy had all the love in one division, goes to another command, and all of a sudden, he doesn't have all that because he continued these practices that were acceptable there, but all of a sudden, these other, this other group didn't find these practices acceptable. So he had to change himself, or she had to change herself to in, interact with her environment in a better fashion. I think that's really one of the things that needs to happen here because you, you get a bunch of people like in Baltimore and all of them know each other. You know what I mean? They all know, well, I know John, I know Tim, I know James, I know Bill. But see, here's the thing is that when you do that, that becomes personal loyalty that's going to outweigh their loyalty to justice, their loyalty to doing their jobs properly. And that personal loyalty is going to drive them more because they know these people, they know their wives, they know their husbands, they know their children. You know, it, it's it, there's so much of a centric loyalty based on bonds of friendship instead of bonds to the system of justice. Let me ask you that a question. It's causing a lot of that. Let me ask you a question. We had a town hall on policing um, on this network on Sunday, and one of the suggestions that was made is that patrol officers, those who patrol communities, should live within those communities. And that kind of speaks to to what you're saying because, and, and I kind of, again, I don't know if there's anything to work. I'm 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 just spitballing here, but I yeah. surmise that. 
okay, that kind of makes sense that if I live in the same community as the community I'm working in, then it's then those are my neighbors. I, I, I know these people. These are my neighbors. I see them every day, not just when I'm doing my job, but when I'm, you know, going to the businesses and or I'm walking down the street or jogging or whatnot. And then when they become part of the community, they begin to empathize with the community and would not be so quick to murder someone or abuse someone uh in their own community does that make any sense to you yeah of course it makes sense and that's not something that's enforced that's a concept of policing that started back when policing was first formed back in the roman empire i mean you're talking about the the romans required their de facto police department they they had to live inside the middle of the community that they were policing they were not allowed to they were not allowed to live in another area Right. It was basically enforced. That's a policy that could easily be enforced. You know, that's a policy the military enforces all the time. So it's a policy that can be enforced. It's just the fact that we don't. Well, that's when it's on the people to make them do, because they are supposed to be our servants. We're paying them. So that's on us as the people to make these things happen, because they're not going to do it on their own. They're not going to reform themselves. (laughs) A lot of the problems are because of us. We've right. allowed people to be, we've allowed people to be subtly racist. We've allowed people to be, you know, to, to accelerate their racism and comments on different social media outlets, in the news, senators, judges, congresspeople out blaringly on national television making mm-hmm. racial statements. And it, we continue to allow this as a people. I mean, that, that says something about the voting constituents inside of those districts, that they're allowing people that are supposed to be representing them to have biased opinions. When the Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, <laughs> all men are created equal. And right. women as well. you find out whether or not you think a juror is going to be racially biased within just a few minutes, you can certainly find out whether or not a police chief is, or a mayor, or a congressman, or a senator. Or exactly. They, they, they can easily tell that. They can easily tell that with, with psycho, uh, psychological studies or psychiatric tests based on physical uh, physiology responses that they can measure very easily. You put a picture, I mean, they do this with people that are pedophiles. To determine how strong your pedophilia is, they, they use pictures to determine how strong of a pedophile they are. That's how they rank them from least dangerous to most dangerous. If we can do this with people that are in prison, then we damn sure should be doing it to people that are in power. Or people don't. that's going to sit on the jury. That, that's something you can do too. But anyway, I'm sorry for taking up so much of your time. That's okay. <laughs> I appreciate your your uh, ideas, and it sounds interesting. Uh, I guess people should consider those things. We need all the ideas we can get. Thank and, you, for, uh, well, Max. We know each other, by the way. DDO, <laughs> uh, huh? Yeah, that's me, buddy. <laughs> What's up, bro? What's up, bro? Well, thanks for I miss, calling. I, I appreciate you. that. <laughs> I appreciate I'm so a fan, Max. All right. Thanks for calling. You guys have a great night.
All we right. got about 15 minutes left, and we got two segments to do, which is our 21st Century Ride of Underground. Um, and our mission is in profile. Anything we want to do before we get to that, Scotty or Johanna? Um, no, I, I, I don't. No, no. And then, by the way, I do have the uh, abolitionist profile recorded tonight. Oh, oh awesome, awesome. I, I like when we have those. We add them to our collection in such a way. That's, that's a good thing. Um, okay, well, any other callers? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Let me clear the caller's queue because I haven't done that. Um, um, Max and Johanna, don't hit star six because I know y'all numbers, and that way I can unmute you from the other part of the board. Q&A uh, queue is second. cleared. Okay, Max is unmuted, uh, and Johanna is unmuted. Okay, all right, guys. All right. If there's no other callers, there was one thing that I wanted to read as usual, a little bit of a computer problem, but you know, we did the Baltimore is Ferguson and uh, it was the, actually the only city that we did, because we were doing it state by state, but we did Baltimore in particular because of what was going on with the Freddie Gray case. And some of the things that we found out about Baltimore, it's pretty amazing. Like, nine out of ten people in the jail are African American. African Americans make up the largest percentage of the people in the jail, despite being only 64% of this residence, and that African Americans comprise 89% of the people held in the jail. Currently, more than 2,900 of them are incarcerated there right now. And the Baltimore jail is one of the largest municipal jails in the entire country. More than 73,000 people go through the Baltimore Central Booking and Intake Center every year, and over 35,000 people are committed to the Baltimore City Detention Center annually. And when you start talking about this is primarily people of color that are going in and out, eight out of nine of them are going in this jail. You know that Baltimore has a serious problem going on, and it's a lot more than just injustice. You can find all of that information and more right on our New Abolitionist Radio. Well, with that, with that being said, uh, I'd like to bring in our next segment, which is our Abolitionist in Profile. Scotty Reed? Um, our Abolitionist in Profile, if I can find, is uh, Mr. William Howard Day. William Howard Day, October 16, 1825, December 3, 1900. The name of William Howard Day is not as well known as Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, although he worked with both of those famous abolitionists in the mid-1800s. Day was born in New York City. His mother, Eliza, was a runaway victim of slavery. It is not known if his father was as well, but both were living free in New York when he was born. His father died in an accident at the New York Harbor when Day was only three years old. Attorney, newspaper editor, minister, and abolitionist, William Howard Day traveled to Britain in 1859, where he lobbied for a boycott of cotton from the United States to break the economic viability of human bondage. He proposed growing and marketing cotton from Africa. He also visited Ireland and Scotland to raise money for the cause of abolishing slavery in the United States. He became heavily involved in the Underground Railroad, helping escape victims of slavery flee to Canada. For a time, he also lived in Canada, working in refugee settlements for victims of slavery, where he also published a newspaper. On July 4, 1865, Day gave a speech on the White House grounds to thousands of people, 
including recently freed victims of slavery, congressmen, and government officials. They reminded those assembled that the Declaration of Independence is not yet fully carried out, nor will it be until the black man as well as the white is permitted to enjoy all the franchises pertaining to citizens of the United States of America. They later worked for the Freedmen's Bureau. They will become a lecturer and one of the leading advocates for the Equal Rights Movement, helping to found the Equal Rights League, which became the predecessor for the NAACP. He eventually settled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and became the first African American employed by the Commonwealth. Shortly thereafter, he joined the Harrisburg School Board and later became its president. New Abolitionist Radio salutes William Howard Day. Salute. Salute. Word. Word. Um, before we go into our next segment, I just want to uh, point out some links that you can find on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook's page. Uh, stories we weren't able to get in to cover, but you should check them out. One is where a judge is allowing a white supremacist to cover his Nazi tattoos so jurors can treat him fairly. Uh, that says a lot in itself right there. And also, uh, take a look at the Missouri Cure event coming up September 24th, where I'll be the keynote speaker. And, of course, you'll know what I'll be talking about there. Uh, hopefully, Brother Yohanan will also be there. And, Scotty, they've asked for you to come and want to know if you can bring your equipment. Since you can't leave the office, can you bring your equipment and air live from Missouri? Uh, they may be able to make it possible for you to be able to be there if you can't. So uh, consider that, Scotty Reed. All right. <clears throat> well, our next segment uh, of the day is our Riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Shout out to my brother Yusuf Hassan from Patterson, New Jersey, who provided us today's uh, wrongfully convicted men. And they are Perry Cobb and Darby Tillis, who were wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death for the 1977 murder and armed robbery of the owner and an employee of a hot dog stand on the north side of Chicago. They were arrested three weeks after the crime when a witness, Phyllis Santini, went to the police with a story implicating them. Both men professed their innocence. The police found a watch taken from one of the victims in Cobb's room. Cobb claimed he bought the watch for $10 from Johnny Brown, Santini's boyfriend. It took three Cook County jury trials for prosecutors to convict Cobb and Tillis. The first two trials ended in hung juries. The third resulted in convictions and death sentences. But the Illinois Supreme Court reversed the case based on judicial error. After the reversal, Rob Warden published a detailed account of the evidence in Chicago Lawyer, and the article was read by Michael Falconer, a recent graduate of DePaul University College of Law, who happened to know Phyllis Santini. Before enrolling in law school, Falconer took a summer job in a factory where Santini also worked. One day, she confided that she and her boyfriend, Brown, had robbed a restaurant and shot someone. Upon reading the article, Falconer immediately contacted Cobb and Tillis' defense lawyers. When the case came up for retrial, Falconer was working as an assistant state attorney in neighboring Lake County. Falconer's critical testimony led to the acquittal of Cobb and Tillis in 1987. Fourteen years later, 
as a result of petitions brought by the MacArthur Justice Center and the Center on Wrongful Convictions, Governor George Ryan granted Cobb and Tillis pardons based on actual innocence. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you and welcome you to freedom, Brother Perry Cobb and Darby Tillis. Welcome to freedom. Indeed. Welcome to freedom. Well, end of the day blues, brothers. End of the day blues. Any, uh, I appreciate our callers tonight and our listeners worldwide. Uh, please, if you can, share this with someone. Share uh, some of the archives and tell other people to come listen because the truth is something that needs to be spread and we need to get our focus together on what it is we're fighting. So any final statements for the evening, Scotty, Johanna? Um, okay, I'll go first. Um, yeah, um, I'm going to just keep it sweet and simple. Like Max um, says, you know, we are not really dealing with mass incarceration. I know uh, at the Democratic uh, National Convention, I heard this lady say, you know, we're not going to worry about being politically correct. Well, mass incarceration is a politically correct term for slavery. It is a fact. I'm, it's not Scotty's belief it is not something he, he, you know, thinks is happening. I know that slavery was never abolished because I can read and I can comprehend what I can read. And the 13th Amendment makes it clear that they can still put you into slavery if they convict you of a crime. Okay, and, and that crime doesn't have to be a real crime, just as long as they get some politicians to put a law on the book criminalizing people's behavior, then, you know, they can make a whole bunch of slaves. And that's what we're really dealing with uh, in this country. And so, like Max says, you know, once we come to this realization that we dealing with slavery, well, then maybe we will start, you know, uh, redoubling our efforts to abolish this this evil that's going on in this country um, and emanating from this country worldwide and we need to do it once and for all so as Hillary Clinton talks about if she uh, gets in there in her first 30 days she'll have a constitutional amendment uh, to uh, get big money out of politics well another way you can get big money out of politics that's coming from the private prison industry the modern day enslavers is to uh, put a constitutional amendment that amends the 13th amendment or just get rid of the 13th amendment you know i mean it, it should be universally understood that slavery is wrong and you can't do it so why even have the 13th amendment why do we even need to make that statement but if people don't want to go that far and they think that you need to explicitly put this in the constitution then let's see a constitutional amendment in the first 30 days to amend the 13th amendment and remove the exception clause in slavery Amen. Hey, Brother Johanna, we got four minutes left. Can you just save me about 90 seconds? Uh, let me see if Johanan is still on. Uh, we may have lost Johanan. I don't see Johanan on the board. Uh, there's Johanan, but Johanan, we can't hear you. He might have himself muted. Um, something might be going on. So, Max, go ahead. I, I'll, 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 since uh, Johanan's having problems, um, I'll go ahead and uh, speak for Johanan. Uh, peace to the abolitionist, death to the oppressor. Amen to that. That's the same thing I was going to say, Scotty. We know what he feels. Live your creed by Langston Hughes. 
I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I'd rather one walk with me than just to show the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Advice may be misleading, but examples are always clear. And the very best of teachers are the ones who live their creed. But to see good put into action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hand in motion, but your tongues too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be very fine and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the fine advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution, so we can finally know peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize